Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. It's page 896 in the Pew Bible. If you have that with you and you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, turn to page 896. I do encourage everybody to follow along in the Pew Bible. Say again. Oh, it is a Children's Church Sunday. Children, you may be dismissed to Children's Church. Don't worry about turning to page 896 in your pew Bible, for you are going to Children's Church. Thank you, children, for walking to Children's Church. As opposed to cartwheeling down. I have a daughter whose preferred means of travel is the cartwheel. Um, and uh, I'll let you guess as to which one that is. Um, page 896. This is the word of God. We'll pick up our reading in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's go down and keep our reading. Go down to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let us pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage this morning, would you help us to use it to magnify you, the Lord of hosts, in our hearts. And I pray that as a result of our understanding, Jesus being the good shepherd, that you would cause us to know you and want to know you all the more. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things you'll learn as you read histories of World War II is there were so many different acts of valor, great and small. There were acts of valor that will never be retold. There were acts of valor that have been told the world over. The Department of Defense did extensive studies after the war had ended. They wanted to know what would cause a soldier to run into battle regardless of the danger around them. Many men at many times ran headlong into fire for the sake of their fellow troops, for the sake of fellow Americans, they didn't worry about their own fate. They charged forward, just as they were told, into great danger. What motivated them to do that? 
It was interesting what they found. It wasn't American ideals. It wasn't the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't the freedoms that we hold dear. Nor was it hate. There was a lot to hate about the enemies, but it wasn't hate that motivated them. What was it that motivated those men to run headlong into danger? What was it that caused those men to defy death and allow themselves to be shot at and shot? It was their friends. It was the men they went through boot camp with. It was relationships. It was the people that they knew. They came through training with this fella and that. They bled with this fella and that. They expressed their deepest insecurities and greatest fears to this fella and that. And when it came time to die for this fella and that, they were willing to. For fresh replacements, not so much. But for the men that they knew, for the men that they had gotten to know, for their friends, they would run headlong into danger. Jesus is saying in this passage that I, right now, am running headlong into danger for my friends, for the people that I know, for the people that I love. I am right now, present tense, giving my life for them. It's the one act that will earn the Father's love. It's the one act that will stand throughout history. And Jesus did it. Jesus did it regardless of the pain he would receive. He did it regardless of the shame that would be heaped upon him. And he did it because he knows you and he loves you. He did it for the joy that was set before him, the joy of knowing you and loving you. And that's why he calls himself here the Good Shepherd. I'd like to study this morning this passage in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, of the Good Shepherd. Let's get a little context, though, before we dive headlong into our passage. If you just take a quick little glance around the book of John, you'll find in John chapter 9, Jesus performing a miracle, and then in John chapter 11, Jesus performing a miracle. Both of these miracles were by no means isolated. They weren't the only miracles that Jesus did. In fact, they may not even be told in exact chronological order. John is putting them there for a reason. John is putting them there because they're specifically messianic miracles. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And we're told in many places in the Old Testament, most specifically in Isaiah chapter 60, that the Messiah would come and that he would heal the blind. He would give sight to the blind. The Pharisees around him did not see it that way, of course, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Then Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. And in John chapter 11, Jesus does something even more amazing than healing a man who was born blind. Jesus raises a man from the dead. He calls out, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out of that grave. So you know when Jesus had found out that Lazarus was dead, Jesus waited a good long time before getting there so that nobody could say that Lazarus had just fallen into a coma or fallen asleep. Jesus wanted to make sure that Lazarus was 
dead beyond all hope before he showed up on the scene and called this man out of the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it's between these two miracles, Jesus healing a man born blind, Jesus giving sight to the blind, and Jesus raising the dead, that he has this discussion with Jewish people, his own people, some of them who hated him and some of them who loved him. And it's here between these two miracles that Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. These miracles of healing the blind and raising the dead draw out the sinful ugliness of Jewish leadership. Their hardness blinds them to the one who heals the blind and deadens them to the one who raises the dead. When Jesus gave sight to the blind, they, they uh, put the blind man in, 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 through an inquisition. They scolded that man. They, in fact, kicked him out. They were angry at Jesus for doing this. They were angry at Jesus for usurping their authority. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that is when they sought in earnest to start putting Jesus to death. And that is when they were also seeking to put Lazarus to death. These miracles, open for all, revealed this tenacity that men have to grasp and hold onto what is theirs or what they think is theirs. And these Jewish leaders had been usurped by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Son of David. They were simply stewards of the Jewish nation. And Jesus had come and knocked them off of their pedestals. And they hated him for it. And they wanted to put him to death because he was doing such messianic things. Now friends, understand that the healing of the blind man and the raising of the dead man did not create hatred in the hearts of the Jewish leaders. It brought it out. It gave it voice. Also, between these miracles, Jesus makes some staggering claims. And it's the miracles that give weight to the claim. And it's that claim that I'd like to turn our attention to. Now, in chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And that brings us to our first point. We've got two points today, the shepherd's identity and the shepherd's activity. If you want to just jot those down, you can keep track of them as we go. The shepherd's identity and the good shepherd's activity. The good shepherd's identity. Well, first of all, this is a man who stands in contrast to non-shepherds. Who are the non-shepherds? Let's go back to chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold... Uh, uh, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus says that there are people, thieves and robbers, who come into his flock and try to take advantage of the sheep, but they do so by circumventing the door. Jesus later claims in this passage that he is in fact the door. These strangers avoid that door altogether. Jesus has his flock. He has his fold. He's the one who guards entrance to it. In ancient pastoral culture, they had pens, much like we have today. They were typically circular. 
and there was a door opening, and at night it was expected that the shepherd would lay in front of the door. The sheep would not climb over him to get out, and other animals would have to climb over him to get in. But just as we have stock thieves in these days, they had mutton thieves back then. And those people would try to sneak in at night and get to the sheep, not by way of the door. Jesus says there are a lot of thieves and robbers who will try to steal away my people and they will get access to my sheep by denying me, by leaving me out of the equation. You see, what does that sound like? How would that work? How would that even work? Well, let me give an example. Let me give one example. I could list many. It was a few years ago now. My wife and I were in New York City. A couple churches had asked us to come and be a part of um, a camp ministry that these two churches were doing. And it was a Sunday morning, and I went out uh, into the little area where we were to get some breakfast. I walked into this little shop, and there on the TV, they uh, had the video of a large church service taking place just down the street. There were hundreds of people in that cathedral that morning. There was a man in long robes, very decorative apparel, holding golden utensils, surrounded by golden images, and he was leading the people in prayer. They were repeating after him. They were saying things like this, we are sinners. We must repent of our sins. We are broken. We are not worthy of you. It was a long quotation of remorse over sin. It caught my eye, of course, listening to this, watching this. And then this man said, since we are such sinners, let us now pray to... Would you guys agree that this person is off to a great start so far? Let us pray to Mary. Mary. They've circumvented the door, haven't they? They don't want to go in by Christ. And this man, for all his accoutrements of beauty and ceremony is abusing God's sheep by circumventing the door. That's one example that could be many. Well, Jesus says that those are thieves and robbers, people who try to circumvent the door. Jesus says there's another form of bad leaders. These are hirelings. And he says that these people are not necessarily as evil as thieves and robbers, but their effect is just as dangerous. These are people who care for the sheep, and as long as the sun is shining and the sky is blue and the wind is down, they're great. They'll tend the sheep and the needs of the sheep, but as soon as there's danger, as soon as they see a wolf coming, that dude is out of there. He is not sticking around for the safety of the sheep. Jesus says he's a hireling. He doesn't own the sheep. He has no stake in the sheep. 
And as soon as this person sees danger, they're gone. I remember one of my first jobs, I, I worked on a construction crew. Now, for those of you who saw my construction performance for the parsonage may wonder if I ever worked on a construction crew, but I can assure you I did. I did nothing construction related, I will have you know. I carried a lot of stuff around the construction site. Well, the, the construction workers, I found that they had two topics of conversation, two and only two. Well, maybe a third. The, the third that was a potential was, um, what country western station are we listening to today? Uh, that was a, a, a topic of constant conversation. But the two primary ones were before lunch, they would talk about what they were going to have for lunch. And after lunch, they would talk about, wait for it, what they had for lunch. But because I was the new guy on the job and because I didn't have any specific construction skills, I didn't get to go to lunch. They put me in charge of bringing my own lunch and guarding the tools. And I said, guys, listen, I'm not going to... I'm not going to stand in the way of thieves taking your tools. I'm going to sit here and eat my lunch, and if a thief comes, I'm going to say, have at it. <laughs> I, I, I'm not risking my life for your tools. And they're like, that's okay. Nobody will come if you're here. And I was like, okay. Well, nobody did come while I was there. Apparently, I was a, a, a better sentinel for tools than I was a construction worker. Okay? Well, I would say in that case, I was a hireling. <laughs> I had no particular attachment to their tools. If danger came, I was not going to intervene for the sake of tools. The tools would just have to go. Jesus says that's how many people, that's how many people care for the flock of God. As long as it's smooth sailing, as long as things are happy and sunny and blue, these hirelings will do just fine. But we all know that's not life. Storms come, enemies arrive, wild beasts appear on the scene, and it's the job of a shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. And Jesus says, that is what sets me apart from all the rest. The Thieves and robbers, they just want to abuse the sheep for their own gain. The hirelings, they're willing to take a paycheck for the sheep, but they're not going to risk themselves for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd, and the thing that distinguishes me from every other poor shepherd is my willingness to run headlong into danger for the benefit of the sheep. This metaphor of Jesus being the good shepherd, I want you to know, is rich in the Old Testament. We covered a little bit of that this morning in adult Sunday school. If you were here, you can listen to, or if you weren't here, you can listen to that online. Uh, we studied Ezekiel 34, which we'll get to in just a minute. When Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, I want you to know that that's an ancient metaphor. That goes all the way back to Jacob when he said in Genesis 48:15 that God has faithfully shepherded me all my days. We can go to Psalm 23 and see one example of how David, who was a shepherd boy and was taken from the field and brought into kingship, how he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's going to lead me beside still waters. He's going to satisfy my soul. 
and the shepherd theme runs throughout the Old Testament, and it keeps popping up over and over again. The shepherd of our souls. He tends us. He is our shepherd. The metaphor takes on a little different shape. Prior, it's the picture of a God and king who leads us safely along, who guides us and feeds us. But in the prophets, this metaphor takes on a richer, more hopeful picture. This isn't just a person who leads us presently, but a person who's coming. Ezekiel 34, the root of David, who's going to come and right all wrongs. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to care for our very needs. He's going to set us up in eternal pasture where he will bless us and make us a blessing. There's all these incredible, hopeful ideals that you can read about in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, or Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 4. Jeremiah 23 and 30 touch on these themes as well. Zechariah 10, I believe, also talks about it. All through the minor prophets in uh, Micah and Amos, we're told of this shepherd figure who's to come, who will lead us and guide us and bless us and will never forsake us. This is the wonderful shepherd that we're looking forward to. And Jesus says that that is me. I am that person. I am the one who's being looked for. I am the one who's being hoped for. And as evidence by the fact that I can heal a man born blind and I can raise a man from the dead, that proves to you that I am the good shepherd. But Jesus isn't content just to tell us that he's the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, he wants to tell us what the good shepherd does. What does it mean that he's the good shepherd? When I was a kid, my parents uh, and I attended a church for a short time called Good Shepherd Christian Church. This church had a logo, and it was a silhouette of an ancient Near Eastern pastor, pastor, shepherd, with his crook up, and there was a meadow down below him with a gentle stream running beneath and little sheep in the field. I can see that logo in my mind like it was yesterday. That is an appropriate logo if it were Psalm 23. But the John 10 logo should be a little bit different. Because the John 10 logo would require blood and disfigurement, a grave, and then an empty tomb. That's what Jesus says the good shepherd does. And that brings us to our second point, the good shepherd's activity. In verse 11, we're told that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, as we read through that, if you go back and restudy this passage, I might suggest that you write down all the times it says lay down. Because five different times it says that he lays his life down. I lay my life down. I lay my life down. I have authority to lay my life down. This is the point that John is trying to get across. And I want us to notice it every time it says that. It says, let's look at verse 11 with me, if you will. He says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays it down. The whole idea of laying down is that it's a present tense laying down. In all five of these times that Jesus says he's laying his life down, the verb is in the present tense. And laying down means more than how we would use that word. On Friday morning, I I woke up to a, a lovely sight. My wife and kids had decorated the, I'm sorry, it was Saturday morning. It was yesterday morning. On Friday, my wife and kids had decorated the house, and it looked so nice inside. And Saturday morning, my wife was up early, and she just had the biggest smile on her face. Uh, She was wrapping presents. And she was laying them down on the floor underneath the tree. And I thought, huh. That's a pretty cool picture, watching my wife. She, she's a, a very good rapper, too. Like, when I wrap presents, it's like cover, cover, and then I twist the ends and tape it up, okay? Um, she's much better. That's how sort of we could think of laying down. Jesus laid down his life like that, and that, that misses the mark. We, we would think of it maybe like a, an athlete who lays it all on the line. And it's getting a little closer, and, but it's not there. We might think of it like, um, <laughs> like a, an annoying household chore that has fallen in your lap. And you begrudgingly stand up and do your duty and take care of that household chore. And that's not quite the idea either. When Jesus says that he's laying down his life, there's an eagerness. This is a word that has to do with like a fireman who runs into the burning house. There's a danger ahead, and you're laying your life down for the benefit of all of those other people, for the benefit of those inside. You're rushing to the problem to solve the problem. That's the idea of laying down. And when it says that Jesus is right now, present tense, laying down his life, it meant that everything he was doing in his life was the process of laying his life down. He knew by healing that blind man, he knew by raising that man from the dead that the Jews would want to kill him. He was setting up his own death. He was creating his own enemies, and he knew it, and he was eager about it. He was willing. We see another picture of this in the book of Mark when Jesus set his face like a flint and charged up the hill to Jerusalem knowing it was there that he would die. Jesus' entire life is a prelude to this laying down his life, and he was paving the way for his own death. The second thing that the good shepherd does is that the good shepherd knows. The good shepherd knows. Just as we're told in John 10, five different times that the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep, Five times in chapter 10, we're told that Jesus knows his sheep, or that his sheep know him. And this is a word for knowing somebody personally. This isn't knowing a fact or understanding the logic of something. It's not being able to recount the historical details of it. It's a personal, intimate knowledge of a person. Perhaps 
some of you knew of your spouse before you met them. You'd seen them over here. You thought they looked nice and kind. There was something about them that you wanted to get to know. But it wasn't until your second or third date that you could say that you actually knew them. And that is the idea here. That's a personal knowledge, a deepening personal understanding of that person as opposed to simply knowing facts. We're told, amazingly, in verse 15, that Jesus knows us eternally. Look at C right here in verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Back before then, I know my own, and know my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus is saying here that he had identified you in eternity past to know you, to have a personal relationship with you. And he has eagerly laid down his life for you so that in the here and now and forevermore, you and he will have this growing personal relationship. And his knowledge of you is as intimate as his knowledge is with his Father, which stretches into eternity past. Jesus wants to know you. He wants to be known by you. And he has anticipated knowing you in eternity past. Jesus knows you, verses 14 and 16, so that he can be known. We talked about this in adult Sunday school. It's not like the good shepherd comes to you and fixes you up and sends you on your merry way. Jesus fixes you up so that he can bring you into his fold and that forevermore you can have a growing relationship with him. The purpose of Jesus laying his life down for you was so that he could know you. Jesus came with this mission to lay his life down so that this growing, budding relationship could take root and prosper. Shepherds back in this day and age had distinct whistles. I know a little bit about that. My dad has what was, I, I'm sure of it, the most powerful whistle known to mankind. And I would be out playing who knows where in the neighborhood, and my dad would come out on the back porch and he would blast his whistle a certain way, and that meant it's time to come home for dinner. And I would hear it and head right home. Well, in a similar fashion, ancient or Near Eastern shepherds had distinct whistles and calls. They even gave little nicknames to each of their sheep, and their sheep, just like your dog at home, would learn its own name. They would whistle and call and name their lambs, and their lambs would come to them because they knew them. And here in this intimate way, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They respond to me. They know it when I'm talking to them. And they come to me, and there's this bond of love and knowledge and worship and that happens when my word is spoken to me. 
when, I'm sure you guys have known this, perhaps you're somewhere else, uh, you're outside of the valley, you're on vacation or something like that, and you go to a church that's not your own, and the pastor stands up and delivers the word and preaches it faithfully. You perhaps have felt a sudden bond with the preacher who's preaching you those words. Why do you have that bond with them? Well, you have that bond with them because you have a bond with Christ. And you are hearing the voice of Christ through that person. You know Christ, you know his voice, and when you hear it, your ears perk up. And you move toward the voice of Christ. And suddenly a bond is there where there wasn't one before. But it's not you or that person. It's the Lord who's drawing you into further knowledge of himself through his word. That's how Jesus draws his own. That's how Jesus is known by his own. There's a third thing the shepherd does. The shepherd gives. The shepherd gives. When I was a child, I accepted the Lord as my Savior, but because of the circumstances of life, I had no way of getting discipled until many years later. I accepted the Lord when I was 12, and I don't think I became a part of a church until I was about 17. In those intervening years, I would lay in my bed and worry that I wasn't saved. I would have a thought that made it feel like there were dark forces under my bed ready to gobble me up and tug me down into the depths of hell. And I would pray over and over again the sinner's prayer, asking Christ to save me, thinking that maybe I hadn't meant it the first thousand times, and that this time it would be different. There was a man who helped our youth group. He wasn't a pastor. He was actually a CIA operative. <laughs> he kept that on the down low until after he retired. Good man. His name was Jim Payne. And I spoke with Jim about these struggles. And he directed me here. So let's go and see what helped settle this for me. Jesus says in verse 26, or verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them, and this is where we get our point, I give. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Sometimes Jesus comes along and says something so dogmatically that it sounds too good to be true. But if Jesus wanted to communicate to you that once he has plucked you from the fires, once he has saved you and called you his own, if he wanted to communicate more clearly that you will only ever be his own, how could he have communicated that more clearly? What more could he have said? I am giving you, I give you right now eternal life. It's not you that earns it with your prayer. It's not you that earns it with your act. It's not you that earns it with your sincerity. I give it to you. And when I give it to you, I grab you with my hand. And I hold you with my hand. And none, not a single one, will ever escape the clutches of my hand. It is not a matter of your sincerity or your faith or your holding on to Christ. It's a matter of him holding on to you. And the good shepherd who laid his life down for you, who bears the scars of the nail print in his hand, holds you with that nail printed hand. He bears the scar of the proof of his love. And he gives you this eternal life. The good shepherd gives eternal life and he gives you eternal security. The good shepherd, if you are truly saved, will never let you go. Now let's draw some lessons from the good shepherd. The good shepherd's identity and the good shepherd's activity. Well, number one. John 10 makes the death and resurrection of Jesus history's most central event. Okay? John 10 makes the death and resurrection of Jesus history's most central event. Now, we're in a season where we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming, and um, uh, that's wonderful. But may we always be very quick, especially as we interact with our children, to inform them that that coming was not an end in itself, that that coming was not a mere example for us to follow, that the baby in the manger was there for a moment, but grew into a person who was God with us. And that man died on a cross and bore the awful guilt of our sins because we deserved it. He laid down his life. He had the authority to lay it down. He had the authority to take it back up again. And that is the most central event in human history. And whatever we can do, not I'm not diminishing the Christmas season by any stretch, but whatever we can do in our children's lives and the lives of those around us to add context point that that was the beginning of a great journey to the cross that is history's most central moment. That is what we need to be the proclaimers of, especially in this holiday season. Number two, John elevates the knowledge of Christ to a primary concern. The most important thing in the universe 
is that you are known by Christ and that you know him. There, are, there were some um, writers of Christian literature that got into a bit of a fight over what was most important, being known or knowing. I'm going to say they're two sides of the same coin. You can't know until you're known, but once you're known, you will know. And that is the whole concern of salvation. Christ wants to be known by you. He wants to know you. He wants you to come into this knowledge of him, and that knowledge of him is the most important thing you possess. Far, far more than any level of security that we can have in anything else. From the knowledge of Christ, we derive salvation, safety, security, and purpose. Our lives get defined by the knowledge of Christ. And I find in Christian life what Christ is doing oftentimes is stripping you of those things that you're finding your safety and security in. Perhaps it's a, a, a job that you do physically with your hands. Perhaps it's your mind and a level of education and expertise that you have in a certain area. Perhaps it's health or family. Perhaps it's the amount of money that you have in a bank account. And I want you to know that Christ is just going to continually strip those out of your life to where you feel very naked and vulnerable without them. And it's a kindness that he shows us because he's trying to show us that our knowledge of him far outweighs any of those other crutches that we use along in life. And a crutch is supposed to be a temporary appendage. Now Christ is kind. He's not going to walk up and kick all your crutches out simultaneously. But he is going to try to get you past them. And leaning on his sufficiency. Such that you rest deeply in his knowledge of you where all those other things can be taken away from you and you say but I'm known by Christ I'm known by Christ there will come a day when none of those things matter anymore it's a healthy thing that pastors do from time to time we go to deathbeds and on the deathbed all those things that became our crutches mean nothing they mean nothing all that matters is whether Christ knows you and you know Christ. So let's get a head start on that. Number three. John 10 demonstrates the evangelistic heart of Christ. He says, I have other sheep that aren't of this fold, and I'm going to go get them. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is constantly doing. He's constantly looking for new sheep. He's the one who leaves the 99 in the pen and goes out, looks for the other one, grabs and brings them home. Jesus' heart is to grow his flock, to see others come into his flock. And the great joy of serving Jesus and knowing Jesus is that we get to be part of that mission. We get to be part of the people that go find others. And one of the great assurances of this passage is that some will hear and respond well. We will give people 
the words of Christ, and some will reject it. But others will hear it and go, oh, please tell me more. I want to know about that. And when that happens, that is Christ drawing more and more people into his faith. Jesus has a great evangelistic desire to grow his faith. Well, that wraps up our study of John 10. I do hope it's been a blessing. Let's pray, and then Nathan will come lead us in a final song. Father, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are the good shepherd. You lay your life down for the, she- for the sheep. You do it so that you'll be known. And I pray that we would know you and rest all of our security in you. Lord, there are people who come to us apart from the door. May we reject them in view of you, our great shepherd. May we hear your voice and come to you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Nathan will come now.